Welcome to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I'm joined this week by co-host Chris Grisolia, a.k.a. Gramps. This week is episode 53. Our guest is Amanda Ryman. She is the founder of Personal Plants. Amanda's activist, professor, researcher. She's a PhD, 20 years of experience studying the relationship between people and plants. She's been manager of marijuana law and policy for the Drug Policy Alliance, trying to make change out in the world. We welcome Amanda to the show. How's everybody doing? Hey, great to be here. Glad to have you. So we were talking just shortly before the show. You have a, you have a PhD, your doctor, your doctor, Amanda Ryman. What is your PhD in? Explain that for our listeners. Uh, so my PhD is in social welfare. And uh, my dad actually likes to call me Dr. Dope. Uh, he thinks that's really cute. Um, and, you know, I fell in love with the profession of social work because the profession directs us to challenge issues of social injustice. And, uh, you know, that to me was really appealing because that was something I was already interested in. I was studying the drug war and the impact that prohibition was having, especially on vulnerable communities. And social justice was really at the forefront of that. So I decided to become a social worker because I wanted to challenge the way our country works, the way that we treat people the role that criminal justice plays or doesn't play in the use of substances. And social work was very much at the same age as I was. seriously people take my ideas, which, you know, now are a lot more mainstream, but 20 years ago were viewed a little bit on the fringe. I bet. It, yeah, it's it's <laughs> difficult trying to convince people that they're stuck in the mindset of addiction is a choice. And yeah. the laws are based off this mentality of addiction is a choice. And we finally started realizing in the last decade, it started becoming you said, more mainstream that addiction is not really a choice. It's a disease. Well, I think that what we end up doing is we end up personalizing people as drug addicts, right? And when yeah. you talk about a person as if their behavior is what they are, it really helps people discriminate against them because they're saying, look, I'm not an addict. That person is an addict. Therefore, that person needs to be treated that way, which is not how I need to be treated. And so changing the way we think about it, and instead of it being an addict, you know, it is a person who has issues with substances at this point in their life. And it really humanizes it to think about 
the individual first and that we all go through struggles. For some of us, it's substances. With other people, it's food. With other people, it's work. Um, we have all experienced difficulty in finding balance within our lives. Absolutely. But for some of us, that doesn't result in criminal justice, prosecution, and incarceration. And for other people, it does. And so really recognizing that we're all just talking about people that might be facing struggles that need help and don't need punishment. Yeah. Yeah. You, t you talk about about the, the, the substances and we've all been there. Right. Uh, I, I had my run in as a young man, uh, I, my late teens uh, with cocaine. And it wasn't anything that was uh, something that was planned. You know, I went to a party. I was in the right place at the right time with the wrong people, basically. You know, and uh, it, it took some work and some doing and some some soul searching to get away from that, you know, but uh, it can be done. It's just a matter of making the decision in my in my mind as far as recovery. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and and I, I agree with you. Um, you know, that didn't define you. You no. know, it, it, it wasn't who you were as a person. It was something that you were engaging in for various reasons at that time in your life. Um, and it's something that you can evolve from. And so I think it's both a recognizing that nobody is choosing to be in a situation where their life is getting destroyed and their relationships are getting destroyed. And that's not what people want. At no. the same time, they can still be them and move past their issues with substances. Um, but we as a society are very rigid in our expectations mm -hmm. of what that looks like. Right. Yeah. Um, which makes it hard. Yeah. We, we've done this weird thing and I've talked about it in a, a group I was in. I, I'm a veteran. I go to the, I attend the VA and I've gone to some groups and we were talking about different treatments for things like getting sleep when you have PTSD and a veteran brought up, he goes, Oh, I've got this device I put on my ear. It does this, this little thing and, uh, it helps me go to sleep better. And he goes, and it's not addicting. It's not addictive. And I was like, Oh, so can you just go without it then? If it's, so not addictive. And he's like, well, I, I don't mean it's, it's addictive like that. And the doc brought up that he's like, you know, this is a great point. Um, I've had a professor at a class bring a glass of water out and go, this substance right here, this is the most addictive substance on the planet. Try going three days without it and see how crazy you go trying to get a hold of this product and put it in your body. Wow, that's fascinating and so right. I mean, our whole idea of addiction, again, is based on this moral failing that people who have dependence on substances or who are using substances hazardly uh, in a hazardous way somehow have some moral failing that they, that they have to make up for um, that we ourselves who are healthy don't have. When the reality is, as you mentioned, a lot of it is a biological mechanism. Um, and it's interesting because I think one of the first people to really bring to light this idea that you could develop drug dependence, even though you were a very healthy, active person was Brett Favre. And I'm not sure if you remember, yeah. but maybe like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, he came out and said he had an opiate dependence. And it wasn't that he was seeking a high. It wasn't that he was trying to go out and party. He was very legitimately taking opiates for the pain that he has from playing professional football and taking them over a period of time develops physical tolerance. And if you want to move away from them, you have to go through withdrawal and there's a, a process to that. And I think him coming out and being open about it showed people that it isn't this like party person that in the shadows that's trying to have a good time, that even in the course of regular medication, 
you can become dependent, which is why cannabis is such an amazing option for folks. Because when you're talking about people, from your example, who have trouble sleeping and do need to take something every single night in order to sleep well, there are a lot of things that are way more dangerous and habit forming than cannabis that they can choose. And not having access to cannabis is just going to push people towards more dangerous outcomes and, and substances that they very well could develop a severe dependence on. Um, so, you know, obviously you all know this, it, it makes no sense the way that we direct people when we're trying to keep them safe uh, and as healthy as possible. And, and even then there's, there's sleight of hand with saying dependence. And the example I've given people in the last couple of years here in Texas is, is we, we don't look at people who have diabetes and take insulin and say, oh, well, you're insulin dependent. It's like, no, this, this is correcting something that's going wrong within their system. And without this, they're going to die <laughs> or they're going to live in such an uncomfortable state. It's just it's misery for them. And the same thing happens with any other medication. And we we tend to forget that it's like looking at the, whether the outcome has these negative byproducts that we don't want. Like opiates obviously has detrimental effect on the human body for long-term use. Same thing with um, even what's, I would say, a less aggravating drug that people are very common with, NSAIDs like ibuprofen. Mm -hmm. Ibuprofen has big fallout on your intestines over time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's really interesting because people obviously should have options and you don't want to take too much of anything, cannabis included. Uh, you know, we get this idea that because you can't have a fatal overdose from cannabis, that people can just consume as much as they want and not think about it without any negative effects. And that's not true. Um, but going back to your dependence example, when you look at the endocannabinoid system that we all have, there are theories about endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. And this idea that for some of us, our endocannabinoid system is not producing these chemicals as efficiently as it should. And because of that, we're experiencing symptoms of dysregulation, which could be nausea, it could be pain, it could be trouble sleeping, it could be issues with mood, and that cannabis is actually regulating that by introducing cannabinoids from the plant. So back to your, you know, diabetes and insulin example, it's very possible that those of us that find relief from cannabis are having a malfunction of our endocannabinoid system. And it's possible that that functioning could be impacted by PTSD and other conditions to where cannabis is needed simply to make up for the detrimental uh, effects of not having a fully functioning endocannabinoid system. I, got you got bring up, I, I just want to bring up something that, that I brought up when I interviewed you on my show a year or so ago. Uh, there, there was a L.com did a piece on you where they called you the brain Tell us why and how that made you feel. Well, as you can tell from this podcast already, I love to talk about science. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, science. Um, and I really take pleasure in helping the public understand what's happening in the research world. Because a lot of that information is very inaccessible. Either it's in a journal that costs hundreds of dollars a year in order to subscribe to, or it's very complicated and the methodology is not for the lay person to understand. And so unfortunately, a lot of times the public has to rely on the media as a translator for this research. And let's face it, for the media, their goal is to have you read their articles. So they're going to yeah. distort 
headlines. They're going to inflate results um, because they want people to read their story. So I have found that one of my roles during my career has been to help the public understand what the research actually says and to cut through some of that media. So I think when I got that term uh, from Al uh, of being the brain, um, I like to look at it as more like a translator and somebody who has the training to understand what the research is saying and then the ability to tell the public about it in a way that they can understand and access. Yeah, it's something that's been a a hot topic lately that I've seen, at least in my my social media feed, has been about access to journals and being able to give the average person a gl- even a glance at like what these research articles say. And I'm personally, I'm a mass comp student. Um, so I very much understand what you're talking about, what the media is trying to do with this. Cause even to an extent I have to admit we're running a podcast here. I'm going to post a video up. I'm going to have the title in some way that people go, Oh, I, I want to hear what she has to say about this sure. and then post it in a way that gets them to come watch the full video and indulge in what we're, we're speaking about. The thing that worries me, though, right now is in the state of our country, and it's been this way for a while, is that the average reading level is like the eighth grade reading level. Fourth. That's even yeah, worse. I was say. <laughs> We've cut it in half. My, <laughs> but they tell us, that, at, least they t- at least they tell us at uh, Texas State, they're like, understand when you're writing for an audience, the average reading level for the average reader is eighth grade and not above that. So you've got to keep it simple. I'm like, man, it's difficult. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And because cannabis is already so sensationalized and because there's already so much propaganda going on around it, it's, you know, the media really takes pleasure in that. And so they really try to inflate and exaggerate what's happening because they already know that cannabis is a sexy topic and that people are going to be interested in it. So if they can give you a hook, um, then they're going to get you in. And, you know, uh, my day job, is as chief knowledge officer at New Frontier Data. And one of the things we have to be really careful of and really on top of is how our data and research is being portrayed in the media and ensuring that the way they talk about it is accurate. Well, it is time for us to go into a sponsor break here at the Lone Star Collective podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I'm joined by co-host Gramps, a.k.a. Chris Grizzolia. This week is episode 53. Our guest is Amanda Ryman personal plants. We'll be right back here at the Lone Star Collective podcast. Oak Cliff Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and the Lone Star Collective podcast. Oak Cliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flour, pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta Eat, and merch. For more information on their product's quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Thrive Apothecary offers an experience truly unique from anything else in Texas, a full-service cannabis solution that is doctor-owned and offers customers every level of cannabis legally available in Texas. From traditional CBD products to emerging hemp-derived THC edibles, smokables, and now medical cannabis. As a licensed medical cannabis provider, prospective patients from anywhere in Texas can book a sponsored online eligibility consultation to determine if they qualify for a medical marijuana prescription from the comfort of 
have their own home. Plus, for Texas veterans, the first prescription appointment is donated by Thrive. Visit thrivetx.com for more information. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, the official podcast of Texas Cannabis Collective. Distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Gramps. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I'm joined by co-host Gramps this week. Our guest this week for episode 53 is Amanda Ryman of Personal Plants. Enjoyed our quaint little break right there. We're talking about our love of science. Um, I I haven't been completely honest. Yes, I I do study math. Um, I was a nuclear power plant operator for the Navy for six years. So I very much in, have been indulged in science. I'm sure you have. I, that's a different, whole different kind of science. Yeah, just a little bit. <laughs> I remember they asked me, what science classes do you want to take in college? I was like, anything but physics. Keep me away from physics. <laughs> I've had enough physics and enough calculus. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I'm very much about, like you said, the art. that's why I would say I do so well at this is I'm able to go through and read these these journals and understand the lingo that's being used. And I understand how the average person, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. It's insanely difficult. It's language they don't hear every day. Yeah. But I wanted to ask, you've done policy work. Um, you're out in California. What would you say is some of the pitfalls? How would you uh, explain to our listeners some of the, the misguidedness that came with legalization that we should avoid in trying to do this in Texas? Well... Unfortunately, um, I think that everyone in America is pretty much subject to the pitfall of capitalism. And, you know, the reality is, is that cannabis is a a very overregulated product in the legal market. And because of that cost of entry to get into the industry, to stay in the industry, especially because no one's going to make any money for a little while, it's tough. And it really favors large entities. So folks that have the capital that already have dispensaries in several other states, they're most likely to be able to afford to set up shop in a new market. And so I think, you know, the only way to prevent that is to write regulations that specifically keep them out. Um, But I don't know if that's the answer. So I think the answer is really what the consumer wants. Um, You know, consumers are really interesting when it comes to cannabis. You know, you'll see a consumer in California that only buys organic and drives a Prius and has solar on their house and grows their own vegetables, but yet they walk into a dispensary and they buy indoor weed in a whole bunch of plastic. (laughs) And, you know, there's the connection is missing. Um, You know, from my perspective, when I go to a dispensary, I want organic. I want sun-grown. I want local, small batch, small provider, craft cannabis, because that's how I like everything in my life. Um, But for some reason, most cannabis consumers are still really attracted to high THC. Uh, They're still very attracted to flashy packaging. 
They're still very attracted to celebrity endorsements. And that all favors large companies because large companies are the ones that can pay the celebrities to endorse sure. their product. They're the ones that can afford the flashy packaging. They're the ones that have the gigantic indoor grows that really bring the price down because they're able to produce at scale. And so the smaller producers, are, it's very hard for them to compete when the public doesn't seek out their product. So that's been a huge struggle. I think one area we've struggled in California that you all won't necessarily have in Texas was that we had a very well-run, very efficient, unregulated marketplace. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't an unregulated marketplace in Texas. I was a member of the unregulated marketplace in Texas in the <laughs> mid-90s, and I doubt things have changed much. But you also don't have hundreds of dispensaries that are operating that look just like regulated dispensaries and sell all the same things. They just don't have a license and don't pay taxes. We have that in California. And so getting the consumer to go to a dispensary where they have to pay a whole bunch, like a third more in price on tax, when they feel like they're getting the same product they've always gotten at the unregulated dispensary, uh, it's very hard for them to get to adopt a regulated market. Now, when you look at markets like Illinois, for example, and New Jersey, they're killing it. They're killing it because they don't have a competitive uh, illicit market. It's not that the illicit markets don't exist in those places, but they're very much like the meet the guy in the alley and he'll give you yeah. something and you'll pay for it and maybe it's good. But in places like California and New York that have these very sophisticated markets already, it's very hard to get the consumer to adopt the regulated path unless you really drop prices in the regulated market, which we're not seeing happen because the, the state wants their tax money. So I think that makes a huge difference. Now, something else that's happening, as I noticed in the little ads that you had um, here, is the hemp-derived cannabinoids. So I yeah. think that the cannabis yes. market was not anticipating competition from a federally legal Delta no, 9 no, they, marketplace. They were not. They were definitely not. And so now you have cannabis in California that has to go through all the regulations and the track and trace and pay all the taxes and the licensing fees. And then you have hemp-derived cannabinoids that are being sold at the bodega down the street um, for really cheap as a vape pen. And those companies don't have to go through all of the licensing and taxation and track and trace and everything that cannabis companies have to do because they're hemp. So yeah. that's another thing that in Texas. And that's that, yeah, and that's here, gonna be your competition. And here it's kind of weird in a, in a backwards way with that. Our hemp market is actually more regulated than our medical market. It's yeah. just that it's more expensive to get a license for the medical market than the hemp market. But we have more restrictions on how what you have to test for in our hemp than our medical program. See, in California, we don't have any of that yet. Um, and the feds haven't come up with that. So right now, it's really about states and how far states have gone in their hemp regulation and the bar that they set. The conversation that's happening in California right now is exactly what I said. Hey, is it really fair to make it super easy for hemp farmers to exist and get licenses and treat that like an agricultural crop? where with cannabis, we're treating it as this finished product that has all these taxes and restrictions associated with it, when at the end of the day, Delta 9 from cannabis and Delta 9 from hemp 
Um, you know, the processes are different, one being synthetic and one being natural, but the chemical's the same and the intoxication level's the same. And if that's what you're really concerned about, then the fact that they're regulated so differently in California makes it even harder for the kind of cannabis market to take hold. Absolutely. Now, something else we've got going in California that I don't know how this will shake out in Texas, but we have local control. So that's built into the California Constitution that every locality gets to decide for themselves whether they're going to adopt the state law um, when it comes to health, welfare, and substance use, including alcohol. And so Texas is kind of in the same situation as California, being such a large state that, you know, people in El Paso may not want the same rules around cannabis as people in Austin who may not want the same rules in cannabis as people in Nacogdoches. And so how do you create a state level program that allows those localities to still feel like they're not getting forced into something? And when you do that, they just opt out. We yeah. didn't. We didn't allow local control here. We literally put into our our rules that no county or city could ban hemp. Yeah. Well, hemp is one thing, but when you start talking about cannabis, people get really nervous. And I think people are, even though there's the delta eight and the minor cannabinoids that are being derived from hemp, I think that people are still looking at it as primarily a fiber crop, right? It's like industrial. They think about it as industrial hemp, uh, maybe procuring CBD. But when you start talking about weed. Then communities start getting nervous. Our industrial did not take off the way we expected it to. No. And our market's pretty much right now being kept alive by the non-industrial side of things. Mm-hmm. So like we, they, they wanted, they very much made it clear at the legislative session that they wanted it to be more of a industrial item, at least on the Senate side, that was made clear. And the industry pretty much fought back big time, was like, no, that you're trying to ban us out. The part that isn't set up yet is what you're trying to prop up. There's nothing to prop up yet. Well, so then what will happen when there is, if and when there is a legal cannabis market? So will people that are now buying Delta 8 and Delta 9 derived from hemp, are they going to go buy cannabis? Are they going to be sold in the same place? I mean, we're seeing uh, manufactured products here in California that now have Delta 8 and Delta 9 in them so that they can get around the 10 milligram dose limit of Delta 9. Um, So it'll be really interesting to see what happens in a market, which is something we really haven't seen yet, which is legalization in a market that's already dominated by hemp-derived cannabinoids. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. But I think uh, that the fact that we do have the hemp-derived cannabinoids now widespread in Texas, I think that's going to help with the cat being out of the bag now. Uh, I don't know. It's still going to depend on, you know, if we can get a different lieutenant governor elected and a couple of other, other people, key people. I think that's going to push the storyline forward because not only is the cat out of the bag, but we're not seeing all these catastrophic negative effects. It definitely know. gives a talking point, mm-hmm. um, you know, about you know, like kind of we've already tried this. I mean, well, that's the weird thing is that. I mean, for all intents and purposes, cannabis is federally legal now. Like, they don't talk about it being federally legal, but the fact that hemp is federally legal and that you can derive intoxicating cannabinoids out of hemp and buy them online and have them shipped across the country completely legally, I don't know. That kind of sounds like legal to me. Um, they just went out through the back door. And, you know, they, it, it was, it's really interesting. Um, I saw an ad for a restaurant in Nashville called Bud and Brews where they are serving infused sauces with their food, infused with Delta-8, 
And that's something we're not even allowed to do in California where cannabis is legal and cannabis is not legal in Tennessee, but hemp is federally legal and that's what they're using. So we have a company here. Um, another guy who runs it called cosmic cowboy extractions and they bought a CBG heavy hemp crop from our ag commissioner, Sid Miller and put it in barbecue sauce and called it badass cowboy barbecue sauce. (laughs) <laughs> and and, and, it's, and it, to what you said, that's exactly what's happening here. Um, what's been on my mind lately about this upcoming legislative session for us is that at some point I remember hearing somebody say, well, if this leads to a, a legal market, then this hemp program's not doing what it's supposed to. And we need to look into shutting it down. And I was like, y- y- you did legalize it. You, you basically yeah. did. When you made this program, you did that because – it, like you said, federally, cannabis is legal. They're like, but only yeah. so much THC. And it's like, it's a percentage and not an actual like cap on the amount. So it's like, if we yeah. just make the product bigger, we can shove 25, 30 milligrams mm-hmm. of Delta 9 hemp-based THC into this product. No problem. Right. Well, because the the, I mean... That's the thing is that the federal government has to decide what they want to do. Do they want to get a handle on Delta 8 and all the hemp-derived cannabinoids? If they do, they have to regulate them, which means they're going to be regulating cannabis, which is what they have refused to do. They just are prohibiting it. But I think to Gramps' point, this could push them to say, well, we can't have all this unregulated Delta 9 floating around that kids can buy online because there's no age restriction. So we have to get a handle on this. And then they're just going to wrap it all up into one big package and talk about the regulation of THC and THC analogs. And that's going to cover your Delta 8, your Delta 9, your Delta 10, your THCV. Um, and then they'll just come up with new ones. I mean, it, you know, it's going to be a cat and mouse game. But I really do see this pushing the feds to finally wrap their arms around this in a real meaningful way. Well, it is time for us to go into another sponsor break here at the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I'm joined by co-host Gramps this week. This week is episode 53. Our guest is Amanda Ryman of My Personal Plants. We'll be right back after these sponsor messages. is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and the Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oak Cliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flour, pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta 8, and merch. For more information on their product's quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Thrive Apothecary offers an experience truly unique from anything else in Texas, a full-service cannabis solution that is doctor-owned and offers customers every level of cannabis legally available in Texas. From traditional CBD products to emerging hemp-derived THC edibles, smokables, and now medical cannabis. As a licensed medical cannabis provider, prospective patients from anywhere in Texas can book a sponsored online eligibility consultation to determine if they qualify for a medical marijuana prescription from the comfort of their own home. Plus, for Texas veterans, the first prescription appointment is donated by Thrive. Visit thrivetx.com for more information. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, the official podcast of Texas Cannabis Collective. 
distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Gramps. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I'm joined by co-host Gramps this week. This week is episode 53, and our guest is Dr. Amanda Ryman of My Personal Plants. I saw where you you taught at UC Berkeley, and I, I wanted did. I wanted to know like what kind of classes you were teaching there. Well, I figure if you're going to teach college students, you should teach them things they want to know. So I taught substance abuse treatment drug and alcohol policy and sexuality and social work. And then I also taught research methods, which they didn't like as much, but I love research. So I was really into it. Um, and I love teaching there. I loved living in the Bay area. I loved being on campus. Um, it was a very lively place and Berkeley has always really supported me. And I, I um, said, I got my PhD there in 2006 and I did my doctoral dissertation on medical cannabis dispensaries in the San Francisco Bay Area and how they're operating as community health service providers. And at the time, there was no research being done on the benefits of cannabis or the experience of the medical cannabis patient or dispensaries. And Berkeley really stood by me and they supported my research and they really were proud of what I was doing. And I feel very lucky because I had a lot of colleagues in other universities that were really discouraged from looking into cannabis in any kind of positive way. Um, so that was something that, you know, I really enjoyed doing and it really started my career. So I'm very grateful to them. And I really loved doing that study because, uh, you know, as cannabis evolves, it becomes less of a health service and it becomes more of a commodity. And and now people are going to dispensaries. Dispensaries are like Walgreens or CVS or an Apple store. People are just waiting in line or they're ordering online and having it delivered. And it's really just becoming like any other type of commerce. But back in the early days, it was community health. Um, people would go to the dispensary. They would have not just cannabis, but they would have food and drink and access to the internet and access to books. And they would have support groups um, for veterans and for other folks where they could come in and talk about using cannabis for different medical reasons. A lot of them had gardens where people could participate in cultivation. And it really like did a lot to address people's mental health needs beyond just cannabis and their community needs. You know, a lot of times people who are chronically ill feel very isolated and it can be difficult to connect with other people and to have social experiences. And this gave that to folks. So I felt like it was not going to last <laughs> and that this was a model that was fleeting in time. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I wanted to study it. I have to ask then, in teaching these classes, was there a specific topic or a specific point in these discussions where there would be students that like their jaws are on the floor? They're like, uh, really? Or they want to really like, they're like, I, that's not what I was told. That's not what I was taught. Uh -uh. Well, that's a good question. So I will say this was Berkeley. So the students that were coming there, you know, a lot of them were from the Bay Area, from California. They grew up in households where discussions of drug use were pretty progressive. Um, but I will say that talking about the fact that your body doesn't know the difference 
between methamphetamine and Ritalin and challenging some of these assumptions about the differences between street drugs and prescription drugs, that street drugs are automatically bad and prescription drugs are good. When Mm -hmm. the reality is, if you're taking a stimulant, once you put that in your body, your body and your brain do not have no idea where that came from. Um, All they know is it makes you go faster. And so I think for a lot of students, this idea that drugs were good or bad based on whether they were legal or illegal was something that I really like to challenge. And, you know, I'll just say personally, I do believe that all drugs should be decriminalized. I do not think criminal justice should be involved when we talk about substance use. But it's hard for people to get there, you know, because we're taught that, you know, certain drugs are really bad. And and there's this thing called cannabis exceptionalism, which you may have heard of, which is like, Cannabis is great, but all other drugs are terrible. Yeah. And, you know, cannabis users are great and nice and, and, and smart, but all other drug users, you don't want to be around. Dear, and- dear guest, I'm on methylphenidate. Get over it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but we have to challenge that. Right. So we have to challenge that idea. And I think that, you know, doing this, that was one of the reasons I love teaching college is because at that age, you're ready to challenge stuff. You know, you're ready to think about what you've been taught. One of the fun things I used to do was show them anti-drug movies from the 1950s and 60s. And (laughs) I would say, this is what your parents were shown. Like, if you want to know why your parents have the attitudes they do about drugs, because they were shown these movies in school and told that this was real. Yeah. And it's, you know, we look at them now and they look so silly, but like, it's absurd. It's just it's how they absurd. even approached it was absurd. But it was. but when they were that age, when it was coming out, it was oh my, this is serious. I gotta, yeah. I gotta really think about what I'm I doing steer here. Clear of that, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. But it, it, and I, I like that you bring up about like the Ritalin and meth thing because all Ritalin is is a lab made version of cocaine, and all. All um, Adderall is is a lab made. Well, meth is a lab made version of of it doesn't occur naturally. I think that's a weird thing that people yeah. like. These are just lab made things. It's like meth is a lab made thing, just flat out. Yeah, well, they all. I mean, LSD is no made in a plant. lab. You know, right? Um, so you know, but there's also a lot of plants. Um, you know, talking about plants, which is my passion, is um, is people growing their own plants. You know, there's a lot of plants that are psychedelic, that are medicinal, that people can have access to, that we then turned into drugs. So, you know, opium, uh, the opium poppy is a plant that anyone can grow. Um, you know, I'm not going to tell you to harvest it because that's illegal, but it's legal to grow the poppies. And that's that's what's in opiates. You know, it's not any kind of big, crazy thing. Uh, Coca leaves, cocaine, Um, you know, coca leaves are a stimulant that have been chewed by cultures for hundreds, maybe thousands of years as a mild stimulant similar to caffeine. You know, we get a hold of it. We make it into cocaine. Um, and it's a plant. It's, it's based on a plant. You've got some beautiful plants on that website of yours. I was taking a look at that earlier today. And I was like, man, she, it's a shame she can't ship that to Texas. I can, okay. So guess what? Guess what? Cannabis is not legal to ship. But most psychedelic plants are legal to grow in all 50 states. Ayahuasca is legal to grow in all 50 states. Uh, the Wachuma cactus, which has uh, contains mescaline. Angel's legal trumpet, to grow. I saw that on there. Yep. That's legal. Rudmanzia, legal. Detura, Morning Glory. 
All of these are legal. The one um, beautiful one I saw that I was like, man, because you had the states listed out. I was like, I know Texas is not going to be in the list. It's Salvia. Oh, yeah. Salvia divinorum is one of the few that is restricted. Uh, so is Kratom is restricted in some states. But, you know, if you want to grow a tobacco plant, um, you know, if you want to grow passion flower, passion flower is an analog to ayahuasca. It's got the same chemicals in it as ayahuasca does. Um, passion flower grows beautifully in climates like Texas. So, you know, I always encourage people, and this is really the goal of my personal plants, is to encourage people to grow plants, whether that's cannabis or other sacred plants, to develop a relationship with the plant because it encourages mindful consumption and it really helps you get a better experience from working with that plant. Um, so that's really what we support and we can, we sell plants and seeds and we just want people to develop relationships. I've been growing my own cannabis for over 25 years and it's really helped me have a healthy relationship with cannabis. Um, and I, I, I want that for everyone. I have to ask now, um, I'm wondering if I've ever even said this correctly. If there was a site back in the day called Arrowid. Oh, yes. Remember. Arrowid, Arrowid, everybody go to Arrowid, E-R-O-W-I-D, it's yep. amazing. Because you're, you're, you're listing off the plants and one of the things that came to my mind was I remember reading through that site back in the day and if you're not comfortable growing ayahuasca itself, you can always grow flaris grass, which is the grass that looks like the little ornamental weed that people keep in their yard. And I was just surprised like reading through that, like, yeah, if you grow like a little small patch of this, you can turn that into DMT. Oh, yeah. Well, ice plants. So we have ice plants growing all over California. The spiky pink plant plant on like the little rubbery green leaves that has DMT in it and it grows everywhere. It grows wild all over yeah. the place. Uh, uh, and that was the thing they were bringing up in the site was they're like, you know, pretty much almost all plants have this this chemical in them. They're, they're, they've got a, a load of DMT. Some have it more than others. Hence, like these tree barks or this grass tend to be heavier and like this grass is just obviously it's easier to grow and it grows everywhere. Like they have found this grass like out in tundras where things aren't supposed to grow. And here's this yeah. grass full of DMT. I love it. You know, we make our, our humans make our own DMT as well. It's not in a perceptible dose, but they do think it may uh, be involved in dream state as yep. well so as end of, um, end of life. Yeah, that's um, interesting. There's a book, you might be interested in this. I always talk about this when this types of topic come up. Is, um, it's called Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves. Ooh, I love books. And so I'm writing it, that down. It's called, it's called Sex, Drugs, Einstein, and Elves, A Quest for Transcendence. And it's a book about DMT, and it's written by a mathematician. <gasps> okay, I'm writing things. this down. So the guy's going over, like, what's the likelihood mathematically that this should happen, that we have, like, these shared experiences on a drug trip? Oh, okay. I'm definitely getting that book. <laughs> I love, I, I just, I order books just constantly. You can see it's getting lighter. My partner's opening the shades. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a very fun and interesting dive into the consumption of DMT. And even the guy goes over at one point, you're talking about like end of, end of life, where this is the thing that basically comforts you mm -hmm. at de in, in death. It keeps you from completely panicking and flipping out yeah and that they've noticed in like nursing homes as people are approaching end of life within days their brain is secreting this drug and all of a sudden they're calm they're energy they're, they're energetic but they're not like wired 
they're ready to do things. And they're going, I, I want to go out. I want to explore. I want to meet my family. I want to talk. Basically, it's like their body's going, hey, this is your last opportunity to transfer whatever information you have onto the next generation because you're about to exit this world. That's beautiful. And they've noticed that when these, these symptoms start showing up in, in the patients, that's when they notify families and say, it's likely your family member is getting ready to pass. This is a sign of it. Their, their body's getting ready to push that last bit of energy out and they're going to be gone soon. Wow. That's fascinating. That is interesting. Um, I imagine you've also heard of DMT referred to as the, I think it's called the, the God drug. Where the it's God the, molecule. The, 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 the anti-atheist drug. They're pretty much after a certain dose point. That's something else they discuss in the book. There's actually a dose point where after that, it's like the people who take it tend to come back from their trip and go, something exists. I'm, not, I'm no longer atheist. That's, I, don't, I don't go for that anymore. Well, there's a, connect, uh, there's a connection. You know, the, um, a lot of psychedelic plants bring on this feeling of being connected and seeing that everything is connected. And whether you call that God or you call that the universe, it's this coming back with this idea that you are part of something much bigger. And part of that is this experience of ego death that they talk about, right? Where you dissolve kind of your identity, which allows you to be fully connected to everything else. And, you know, it's very fascinating. But as you said, it's a common experience. So it's not like, oh, this is something that just a few people report. It's something very common. And, you know, bringing this back around to drug dependence, um, Bill W., who founded AA, he was a psychonaut and he took LSD and um, experienced psychedelic drugs. And a lot of folks feel that the spiritual awakening um, that they talk about as this last step of AA is actually brought on by a psychedelic experience and that that's what happened to Bill W. And now that we're looking at the research on the way that psychedelics like psilocybin are able to help with binge drinking and alcoholism, it kind of makes sense that if people are using psychedelics as part of their desire and their journey to move away from alcohol, that having that spiritual connection and that spiritual experience and awakening may actually help them stay away from hazardous drinking. Well, is there anything you'd like to, we're approaching the end of our show now, anything you, you, you wanted to mention that was on your mind or um, plug your website of My Personal Plants as well? Um, yeah, folks can go to mypersonalplants.com, check out our shop, order psychedelic seeds and cuttings. Um, you know, I'd love for everyone out there to grow a plant. It doesn't have to be cannabis. It can be whatever is legal and available to you. But developing relationships with plants and the experience of nurturing a plant is really, really special. And I have high hopes for Texas, no pun intended. Um, I do see them on the horizon as moving forward with cannabis. And I would love to stay in touch and, and hear how things are going, especially with this whole Delta 8 hemp derived thing we talked about. I think this is Texas may be a really interesting test case for how this type of industry all shakes out. So yeah, keep doing the good work. We, well, we thank you that. for being on for sure. So we, thank you for, we thank you for your time here this evening. It's beautiful discussion. I'm always welcome for science discussions all the time, every day. <laughs> I knew, I knew Jesse was going to love you. <laughs> I'm, I'm all about that. So yeah, again, thank, thank you for your time, Amanda. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. Man, quite quite the episode. <laughs> quite the episode. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I'm joined by co-host Gramps this week. This week was episode 53. Our guest was Amanda Ryman of My Personal Plants. Dr. Dr. Amanda Ryman. I'm going to make sure I get that correct. We hope everybody has a great week. Enjoy your time. The Lone Star Collective Podcast. Adios. Adios.